Dr. Robert Vinoy, Old Testament History, Lecture Number 22. The assignment for next week includes a written analysis of the structure of Deuteronomy. I'm not looking for a lengthy paper. I'm not looking really for much more than for you to read the book of Deuteronomy, but what I want you to do is to reflect on the structure and the major divisions of the material. You can read Schultz, that sort of summarizes the material. So what I'm really looking for is more in the form of an outline of Deuteronomy, and certainly with major divisions and some indication of subdivisions, indicate the basic purpose of chapters 1 through 11, and then the major category in chapters 12 through 26, which is the legal material, which is sort of the heart of the book and the nature of the material in chapters 27 through 34. So basically, what I'm looking for is a structural outline of the material. That is to be done as a background for what we are going to do in class. I'm not looking for a long paper of any kind. It's just to get you to look at the structure of the book. This course carries on through. So when I get to Deuteronomy next quarter, this is preparation for that. There is only one reason I do that, because I think there is motivational factor there that will encourage you to read that material carefully and reflect on it. Unfortunately, human nature being what it is, when you know that you're going to be held accountable for something, you usually do a better job. It's not to persecute you, but to help you master this material. We were discussing Abraham as an historical figure in the last class hour. I concluded that with our discussion of Abraham and the Philistines and the question of whether contact with the Philistines is an anachronism in the patriarchal period. Let's go on to number two. Quote, Abraham has our spiritual father. End quote. There are several subpoints there, but A is... Quote, God's covenant with Abraham, end quote, which is mentioned in four passages that are listed, the first of which is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So what I want to do under that heading is look at these passages and see what is involved in God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 and verse 7, you have the original statement of the call of Abraham where he is told to leave his people and country for another place that God would show him. He is given certain promises. We read, quote, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, end quote. Then down in verse 7, quote, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, quote, To your offspring I will give this land, end quote. That is, after he had come into the land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him, end quote. Now in verse 2, where you have the blessing discussed, you find that the progeny of Abraham will become a great nation, 
and he will be blessed and his name made great. Now remember the context for this. He has just left Haran, and he has no children. But the Lord says he will make a great nation of Abraham, and make his name great. Remember that reference to making a great name in the context of the early chapters of Genesis. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1-4, through 4, that had been the ambition of the sons of God who entered into marriage with the daughters of men, and we discussed the possibilities of interpretation there. We read of the offspring of those marriages at the end of verse 4 of chapter 6. These men of old is literally, quote, men of the name, end quote. Then when you come to Genesis 11, where the people gathered to build the tower whose top would reach unto heaven, they said, quote, let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the earth, end quote. When you come to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord says to Abraham, quote, I will make your name great, end quote. God will give Abraham what the others had sought in an improper way. God will give it to him in a proper way. Then in verse 2, the last phrase you read, quote, you shall be a blessing, end quote. That statement is worked out in more detail in verse 3. Because in verse 3 it says, quote, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you, end quote. Now the last phrase of verse 3 is significant. There is a translation question, however, that arises. If you compare the King James or in the NIV, which says, quote, All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, end quote. You notice that the translation is a passive, quote, be blessed through you, end quote. Whereas if you look in the Revised Standard Version, you find the translation, quote, by you all the families of the earth will bless themselves, end quote. Now that phrase, quote, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you, end quote, or in your seed, end quote, is repeated five times in the book of Genesis. You find it here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where the Hebrew construction is what is called a nifel. I'll explain that in a minute. You also have that in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, and chapter 28, verse 14, where you have that same Hebrew construction of the nifel. But then you have it in Genesis 22, 18, and chapter 26, verse 4, in the Hithpael, which is another type of verbal form in the Hebrew construction there. So that three times the verb is nifal, and two times the verb is a Hithpael. But you have the same expression repeated sometimes to Abraham, and sometimes to his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. The question is, how is the phrase best translated? It is interesting that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, translates all five phrases consistently as future passive, not future middle. In other words, it is quite clear in the Greek it was understood consistently as passive. Now you come to the RSV and you don't have it as a passive. You have it as what would be termed a reflexive, quote, in you, all the families of the earth 
will bless themselves, end quote. It's a reflexive kind of idea. The question is, why did they translate it differently? If you look at commentaries, you will find that most modern commentaries translate it like the RSV and make it reflexive. It is often said in that connection in these commentaries that the nifel, which is generally a passive stem, can be translated as reflexive, but that the hitpa'el, which is generally reflexive stem, cannot be translated as a passive. Now, there is an illustration of that in the bibliography. Notice the entry at the top of page 13. Ephraim Spicer, from his book Genesis in the Anchor Bible series, Spicer says on page 86, quote, The Hebrew form is often translated, shall be blessed, inasmuch as it is nifal, which is generally, although not always, passive. There are, however, parallel passages with the hitpa'el, a form that can be reflexive or reciprocal, but not passive. End quote. There's the key, Spicer says. The hitpa'el cannot be translated passive. What the clause means, therefore, is that the nations of the world will point to Abraham as their ideal, either in blessing themselves or one another. The passive, on the other hand, would imply that the privileges to be enjoyed by Abraham and his descendants shall be extended to other nations. The distinction may be slight on the surface, yet it is of great consequence, theologically. Nor may one disregard the evidence from linguistic usage. Now, Spicer is right on that point that there is a great theological significance whether you translate it reflexively or passive. Is this saying in a predictive way that the other nations are going to be blessed as something that will happen to them through Abraham and his seed? Or is it just saying that the other nations are going to look to Abraham as their ideal and bless themselves in some sense? So it is significant. But Spicer says the Hitpa'el cannot be translated as passive. It seems clear all five should be translated in the same way. It's the same phrase that is repeated. So instead of translating all of them passive, Spicer and others translate them reflexively, even though you have a nifal, which is normally passive in the Hebrew. Now the question is, is that really true that a hitpa'el cannot be translated passive? On your bibliography, I have the reference to Alan McRae's, quote, Paul's use of Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, end quote, in the volume, The Law and the Prophets, page 372. The article is not on Genesis chapter 12, or on this text, but he does discuss the use of the Hitpa'el. And in this volume, page 372, he says, quote, Most books on Hebrew today tend uncritically to repeat the statements made in the Hebrew grammars of a hundred years ago, and sometimes these statements will not stand up under full investigation. Thus, many Hebrew grammars say that the Hitpa'el is only rarely passive. End quote. Now, you look at some Hebrew grammars, they will say it is never passive. But he says, quote, Many Hebrew grammars say that the Hitpa'el is only rarely passive, 
but careful examination shows that at least one-fourth of its occurrences must be interpreted as passive. At the most, not more than one-third are reflexive, and extremely few can be interpreted as reciprocal. It's only within the last few years that the existence of the iterative and durative hitpile have been recognized, end quote. And then he goes beyond into something else. But the point is, McRae says, quote, one-fourth of its occurrences have to be translated as passive, end quote. So there is no basis for the statement that the hitpile cannot be translated as passive. It can be. Now, that means when you come to that statement again, you can translate it reflexive or passive. It depends a lot on your understanding of the significance. The grammar allows it to go either way, and it is not as many commentaries, and as Spicer would express, that the hitpael can't be translated as passive. If you're interested in this question, and maybe it seems like an obscure point, there is a good article you can read on it in the entry from O.T. Alice, quote, The Blessing of Abraham, end quote, in the Princeton Theological Review of 1937. He discusses the question very thoroughly there and carefully. I might just say, on the first couple of pages, he says, he speaks about a well-known grammar that again says that the hitpael can't be passive, only reflexive. He says, quote, The student, if he knew of the omission, would be disposed to be grateful to Dr. McFadden for sparing him the necessity for bothering with the doubtful or negligible exceptions to the general rule. But if the student were told that it's upon the validity this unimportant exception to the general rule that the historic interpretation of the blessing of Abraham depends and that Dr. McFadden's key to the grammar cuts the evangelical heart out of the glorious promise, if he were seriously minded, he would feel quite differently with regard to this matter. The question of the possible meanings of the Hitpael would cease to be the dry bones of Hebrew grammar and become a live issue of no small moment to the Christian faith, end quote. So that here is a place where Hebrew grammar does play a rather significant role in interpretation of a rather important passage. Now, Alice, in that article, goes further to point out that all these five passages are translated in the Samaritan, Babylonian, and Jerusalem Targums as passive, not only in the Septuagint, but also in the Targums. The Targums are Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. After the exile, when Aramaic became the dominant language in the Near East. In every case, those Targums are passive. The Septuagint and Vulgate and New Testament quotations of these passages are always passive. Now, the New Testament quotations are, of course, particularly significant for us. That's Acts chapter 3, verse 25, where you read, quote, And you are heirs of the promise and of the covenant made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. End quote. Then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, quote, The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. End quote. 
it is passive. It is striking there in Paul's words what he does call this promise. He calls it the gospel. He says, quote, and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, end quote. Now I think that highlights then the significance of this statement in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. How will Abraham be a blessing to the nations? I think the blessing is to be realized in his seed, who, going back to Genesis 3.15, will crush the serpent. It points back there to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and points forward to Christ and the salvation that he secured. So in that promise, I think you have the idea that is central to the whole Bible. Questions and comments? In neither of the New Testament passages do you have a direct quotation of any one of the five. It is sort of a rewording that combines elements of the five. There are slight variations in the five. You see that argument could be said, quote, they could be quoting one of these Nifal statements, end quote. But I don't think you can say that because of the way it is slightly paraphrased and reorganized. It's just repeating the essence of that basic statement. That also becomes a reason to translate all of them consistently rather than half of them one way and half of them the other way. In Acts chapter 13, verse 17, through the rest of the chapter, Paul traces Old Testament history. He traces Old Testament history from the Exodus through David to Christ. This is Acts chapter 13. He speaks in several places there of Christ as the fulfillment of the promise to the fathers. If you look at Acts chapter 13, verse 23, quote, From this man's descendants God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised, end quote. Where was the promise to the fathers of the seed? Acts chapter 13, verse 32, quote, We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers he has fulfilled for us their children, by raising up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. So references like that move from the promise to Christ. I think there is also an allusion back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that's with the understanding that it is a passive, not a reflexive. So in this statement, and in these statements of the presentation of these promises to Abraham, we have what Voss says on page 77, which is listed there on your bibliography, that, quote, In Genesis 12, one family is taken out of a number of Semitic families, and within it the redemptive revelatory work of God is carried forward. This is the tremendous significance of the call of Abraham, end quote. So what we've been trying to trace is this progression of the line of the promise rooted back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And here we take another significant step forward. The line of Abraham is the line through which that line would proceed. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7 speaks of the land of promise. Quote, Unto your seed will I give this land. Unquote. You notice that verse begins with the statement, quote, The Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, 
unto your seed I will give this land, end quote. This is the first time that it is said in the Old Testament that the Lord appears to someone. Of course, we know that the Lord walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But this expression, quote, the Lord appeared to someone, end quote, this is the first time it occurs. There is a technical term that is used for this and subsequent occurrences of the appearances of the Lord, and that term is, quote, theophany, end quote, a manifestation of God. Now I think if you were to define, quote, theophany, end quote, you would say it is a manifestation of God in a temporary form that is perceptible to the external senses. So through a theophany, God makes his presence visible and recognizable to various people. Now, what the form of theophany was in this particular instance is difficult to say. We're not told. But in any case, it was some visible revelation of God's presence. Actually, the verbal form, quote, the Lord appeared, end quote, is a passive form of the verb ra'ah. It is a passive, quote, God was seen, he appeared, end quote. In the first verse of Genesis 15, you read, quote, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward, end quote. Now, usually, the visionary situation is distinguished from a theophany by the language. The visionary experience is not involved with external sensory perception. It is internal. This seems to be a visible appearance or representation of God in temporary form. But he not only sees something because the Lord appeared to him, he also hears something. God spoke and said, quote, Unto your seed I will give this land, end quote. Now that land promise is alluded to again later in chapter 17, verse 7, and also in chapter 15. But in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, quote, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God, end quote. So it seems like this promise is to have long indefinite continuance into the future. The land promise raises a lot of questions as to whether it has already been fulfilled adequately, whether this everlasting aspect of the promise continues with validity into the present. I'm of the opinion that it does remain in the parallel of Genesis chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. The promise of the land is parallel to the Abrahamic covenant as everlasting. It seems to me that as long as the Abrahamic covenant continues to be a valid entity, the promise of the land corresponds to that. So it is still valid. It seems to me that the full realization of that remains to be seen. My own understanding of various sections of the Old Testament prophetic books 
is there will be a future return of Israel to the land. The prophetic books say a lot about the land after the dispersion and a future return. There are two things that are done with those land promises. Some people say they are adequately fulfilled when they returned from the Babylonian exile. But I think if you look at them in detail, a lot of the specifics do not fit with the return from exile. So that is not an adequate fulfillment. Others would recognize that and say the land promises have a spiritual fulfillment realized in the church in the sense that the land is expanded to the world and it just becomes a symbol, not something to be viewed as a geographical fulfillment with the Jewish people in the future. That, however, goes beyond the scope of this course. But I think we have yet to see a future fulfillment of the specific details. I think it was previously fulfilled in the time of David because if you look at the borders in Genesis 15 from the Euphrates down to the river of Egypt in the time of David, the kingdom was extended to those boundaries. When Solomon took over, it mentions exactly those boundaries. That seems to me to be a provisional fulfillment of it, but it was lost. And it seems to me that the promise is no longer operative, but I look for a future fulfillment of it. Let's go on to Genesis chapter 15, which is the second passage pertaining to the Abrahamic covenant. I think we could view chapter 15 as the ratification of the covenant by the Lord's covenant oath. I want to read down through this because this is an interesting chapter, and I think we should have the whole text in mind. Quote, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Quote. Quote, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 
four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace, and be buried in a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. Quote. Quote, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire-pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And then the borders are mentioned. So you have the Lord speaking to Abraham in a vision, as we noticed in the first verse, as I mentioned. It is a visionary setting where the person receives impressions apart from normal sense perceptions. He can see things and hear things, but not through the external mechanisms of the ear and eye. It's internal. In verses 4 and 5, the Lord repeats the promise of a great seed. Eliezer is not going to be the chosen descendant. There is one who is going to come from his own loins. And again, there is the promise of the multiplication that a great nation would come from him. Verse 6 is striking. Abraham's response, quote, He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness, end quote. That is the first time in the Bible that those two important concepts of faith and righteousness are linked. Quote, He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness, end quote. Notice how that is worded. It's not by his faith that he is made righteous, but the Lord reckoned it to him for righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul alludes to this where he says, quote, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. End quote. Here you have this imputation or reckoning of righteousness on the basis of faith. So redemption of the sinner, Paul is saying, is not by works, but by grace through faith. Leopold's discussion on the justification by faith is excellent. As we go down further, you have this rather mysterious scene painted for us where Abraham has taken animals and slain them and laid the halves open. Then you read in verse 12, quote, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. End quote. Now, remember, you're already in a visionary context. So within the vision, you have Abraham falling into a deep sleep, quote, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him, end quote. And then in verse 17, you have this smoking furnace, that burning lamp that passes between the pieces of the slain animal, which is a rather mysterious and strange phenomenon. Now what's going on is the question. There's a good discussion of this in Meredith Klein's book, By Oath Consigned. That's about the middle of page 13 in your bibliography. You might want to look at that sometime pages 16 and 45. 
but also Meredith Klein in a much briefer way in the New Bible Commentary, section, quote, Commentary on Genesis, end quote, the Genesis section of that volume, page 95, Klein there says, quote, The oath ritual which Abraham prepared was customary in treaty ratifications. From it derived various idioms for making a covenant, like the Hebrew idiom, quote, cut a covenant, end quote. Those of you who have had any Hebrew probably realize that when you read in the English so-and-so made a covenant, or the Lord established a covenant, or whatever the translation is, the literal rendering from the Hebrew is, quote, cut a covenant, end quote. The Hebrew expression is karat barit, quote, to cut a covenant, end quote. If you say, quote, cut a covenant, end quote, it doesn't have any sense because the background of the idiom is lost to us. You see, the background of the idiom is the ratification ceremony that was associated with the concluding of these kind of arrangements where the animals were cut in two. The implication of the slaying of the animals was, so may it be done to me if I don't live up to the obligation of the agreement. So Klein continues, quote, The oath ritual for which Abraham prepared was customary in treaty ratifications. From it derived various idioms for making a covenant, like the Hebrew, quote, cut a covenant, end quote. The curse conditionally involved in the oath was symbolized by this slaying and sundering of the animals, so that it may be done to him who breaks this covenant, end quote. Now a passage that relates to this is Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18, where you read, quote, the men who had violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like a calf they cut in two, and then walked between its pieces. End quote. You see there is a reference to cutting the calf in two and passing between the parts in the context of formalizing a covenant. Quote, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests and all the people of the land who walk between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Quote. You see the language of that reference to the covenant ratificatory ceremony is very similar to what is going on here in Genesis chapter 15. Spicer notes in his Anchor Bible Commentary that the Amorites of the Mari documents, those texts that were found at Mari, used asses in rituals of this sort, with the result that in the terminology of the Mari documents, the idiom was, quote, to slay an ass, end quote, for entering into a compact or a covenant. In Hebrew, you have karat barit, quote, to cut a covenant, end quote idiomatic for establishing a covenant, but reflecting this ritual that was associated with an establishment of this covenant. Now, when you get to verse 17, you notice it says, quote, a smoking, fiery furnace that passes between the slain parts of the animals. And most understand the smoking furnace and burning lamp to be a sort of theophonic representation of God himself. It's God who is taking the oath. He is passing between the parts of the slain animals. 
So Klein says in his commentary, quote, that theophany utilizes, as often elsewhere, the elements of fire and smoke to indicate God's presence. By passing alone between the pieces, God swore fidelity to his covenant promises and took upon himself all the curses symbolized by the carcasses, end quote. Now, Klein, in his book, By Oath Consigned, discusses in some detail the difference between the promise covenant and a law covenant. In the promise covenant, it's God who takes the oath. In the law covenant, it's man who takes the oath. So if you compare, for example, this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, with the Sinaitic covenant, you find here in the Abrahamic covenant, it is God who is taking the oath. It's God who passes between the parts of the slain animals. If you've got the Sinaitic covenant, it's the people who say, quote, all that the Lord says we will do, end quote. So at Sinai, it's the people who take the oath. It's a distinction between two different types of covenant. So this kind of ritual is indicative of the promissory nature of the Abrahamic covenant. God is saying this, is what I will do for you. In the suzerainty slash vassal treaties, the lesser partners took the oath, not the great king. So, Sinai is parallel to the law treaty. Some people try to parallel that treaty form with Genesis chapter 15 and 17. I think there are some aspects of it that are parallel, but the parallel is much stronger with the Sinaitic covenant than with the Abrahamic. The Abrahamic covenant really parallels more what are called the promissory grants, where the where a great king promises a vassal land or something of that sort. Question. What is usually said about the significance of the terror and darkness? The noi. It's just a picture of a very solemn, frightening event. Meredith Klein in By Oath Consigned says, This is the Old Testament Golgotha where God is taking upon himself the curse to assure that those promises will be fulfilled. So there is something of that horror, you might say, built into the setting. Okay, we'll pick up at this point tomorrow. This ends Dr. Robert Vinoy's Old Testament History, Lecture Number 22.